Those of us who have children know the overwhelming desire to see our kids experience peace and flourish in life, don't we? Parents, is there anything more that you want for your kids than that they experience peace and flourish in life? Well, when they're little and they live in our home, we do our best to create a safe environment and teach them to live according to certain principles, principles that at the time they often considered to be oppressive rules because they uh, they don't understand them and frankly they don't like them. But we make these oppressive rules and teach them these principles precisely because we love them so much and our great desire is that they experience peace and flourish in life. When they rebel against these principles, they think that they're living in freedom. When actually they're just hurting themselves, aren't they? And when they do, we grieve with them. Our hope is that someday, someday our kids will understand that by leading them away from their natural foolishness, we were actually leading them to flourish in freedom. But as the uh, parent of adult kids now, and as an adult myself, I can tell you that it often takes a few years in the school of hard knocks before our kids or we actually learn that lesson. Maybe it was the case for you too. It was for Mark Twain, who quipped, When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much he had learned in seven years. (laughs) Parents, this, this desire for our children to flourish. Our teaching them, leading them in principles and sometimes even imposing our will on them is, it's the image of God in us as parents. Because this is what God does with us. God's desire is that all men, women, boys, and girls experience peace and flourish. That's our Heavenly Father's desire for us. That we flourish. And so God gives us His Word so that we'll know how. But knowing our nature... He also gives us this warning that comes from our sermon text today. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. 
There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. These three truths are foundational to our sermon text today in Isaiah chapter 47 and 48. I would encourage you to please take your copy of God's Word or the Black Bible at your feet and turn to Isaiah 47 and 48. It will do you well to follow along closely in the text. It will also do you well to follow along in that note sheet that I provided for you. If you don't have that note sheet, steal your neighbors or maybe just... uh, Follow along in in your ESV journal or in your notebook. If you look at chapter 48, we're going to begin there with what I consider to be the the, uh, foundational truth that holds these two chapters together. In chapter 48, verse 17 through 19, we see God's desire. And then we see God's word, and then we see God's warning. We see God's desire that that all men would flourish. Then we see him give us his word so that we will know how. And then we hear his warning that ignoring his word, going our own way, rejecting him, choosing to disobey him, In other words, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. So look at God's desire in chapter 48, verse 17 through 19. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way that you should go. Verse 18, oh... Oh, do you you hear the heart and the desire behind our Heavenly Father? Verse 18, Oh, that you had just paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river. Your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand. And your descendants like its grains. Their name would have never been cut off or destroyed from before me. Do you see God's desire there that all men everywhere, men, women, boys and girls, every tongue and tribe on earth, that all men would flourish and experience peace and righteousness. He says there that not only is that his desire, but that he has given us his word. Look in verse 17 and 18. He says, I am the Lord your God who does what? Teaches you. Teaches you to to do what? To profit. God's desire is to teach me and you to profit. Keep reading verse 17. Who leads you in the way that you should go? Verse 18, oh, that you had paid attention to what? My commandments. God has given us his word, his commandments, his law. 
so that we would know how to experience peace and be righteous so that our offspring uh, would multiply so that their name would never be cut off from the presence of God. God's word, God's desire. And then he ends chapter 48 with this warning. Now, I, I had a problem choosing that word. Is it a warning? Is it a promise? Is it an axiom? Is it a guarantee? Answer, yes. <laughs> but in a moment, I'm going to show you that I'm calling it a warning because of the tone of this whole passage. Chapter 47 and 48 has the tone about it where God's saying, not just, oh, I wish you would have listened to me, but you, there, right now, listen to me now. You still have time to turn around. So it's a warning. Look at verse 22, 48, 22. God's warning. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. And don't you even love how right in the middle of this bold statement, the author puts, says the Lord. There is no peace, says the Lord God of heaven and earth, for the wicked. And wicked is anything other than those who will follow his way and his leadership and pay attention to his commands. You're not going to flourish. You're not going to be righteous. You're not going to experience peace. You will be cut off from my name forever. So there's two ways to live, friends. Do we see that? In this text, there are two ways to live. Now you understand my sermon text, my outline of chapter 47 and 48. Chapter 47 is there is no peace for the wicked. Let me show you what I'm talking about by showing you Babylon. Chapter 48, there is peace for the righteous, the opposite of wicked. There is peace for the righteous. Chapter 48, let me give you the example of my people, Israel. So our sermon text today is two chapters, which is a contrast proving this axiom, promise, guarantee, warning of chapter 48, 22. Got it? In chapter 47, before we dive in, in chapter 47, God uses Babylon as the natural end of human self-sufficiency and man-made religion. Which is a really good definition of wickedness. Like we think of, we think of wickedness as murder, rape, etc. When God describes wickedness, he, you're going to see in, in chapter 47, he's talking about human self-sufficiency. Like, oh, no, no, no. I got this. I'm in control. I can handle my life. I got my day. I got my week. Or turning to my lucky stars. And, and reading how things are going to be going in, in my, in my, uh, you know, 
astrology report or whatever that thing is called or, you know. Horoscope, thank you. So you read those. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Little. <laughs> kidding. Totally kidding. Chapter 47, Babylon shows us the natural end. The natural end. What you're going to see in, in 47 is that this is a little different than some of the other judgment passages we've seen where God's like, I am going to rain down fire on you. In chapter 47, God just shows you the natural end of your human self-sufficiency and man-made religion. Like, this is not going to work out for you. Kind of like if we were to look at our six-year-old and say, go ahead, do that. You're going to find out. Daddy's right. Natural consequences are going to take over. Babylon receives the result of her natural ways, which are both self-inflicted and the result of God's righteous judgment, leaving us to ourselves. Oh God, please don't leave us to ourselves. And he hasn't. The righteous have no peace. I mean, the, the wicked have no peace. Chapter 48, the contrast, we're going to read it in a moment. Chapter 48, the contrast is the awe-inspiring end of God's grace. Carefully chosen words. Chapter 48, we are going to see God's grace rescuing his people. God does everything necessary to make sure that his people are righteous so that they can have peace, righteousness, and flourish in security. That's God's grace. And by the end of this sermon, I hope that you are awe-inspired. I hope that your chin is on the ground and you are saying, praise you, God of grace. Thank you. Thank you for rescuing me. Chapter 47 is about Babylon. Chapter 48 is about Israel. What's interesting is that there's a problem here. Israel is no more righteous than Babylon is. In fact, some of us, if, if we were to think about it, we might actually argue that they're more wicked than Babylon because they had a lot more opportunity, right? I mean, they had God's word and God's leaders. They had the miracles of God shown to them over and over again. But look at chapter 48, verse 1. God says that they're hypocrites. You are those who confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. Look at verse 4. God says they're stubborn, stiff-necked, and hard-headed. Verse 4, because I know that you are obstinate, your neck is as iron sinew, and your forehead brass. Verse 8, God says about his people, you are rebels. For I knew, verse 8, that you, I knew, 
that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth, you are called a rebel. This is his people he's talking about. And God's tone, just look at the whole chapter 48. God's tone is this stern warning and exhortation. So in verse 1, he says, hear. Verse 6, he says, now see all of this. Uh, Verse 10, behold. Verse 12, listen to me. Look at verse 14. Assemble and listen. Verse 16, draw near and hear. Israel is not righteous. They're hypocrites. They're stubborn, stiff-necked, hard-headed people who are rebellious to the core. So why is chapter 48 an example of the opposite side of this universal truth? Why is 48 an example of there is peace for the righteous? Answer. Because God, as an act of his grace alone, does everything necessary to make his covenant people righteous so that they can experience peace and flourish. God does it all. That's the gospel, friends. Because God has done it all for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Same God. Same stiff-necked, hard-headed people. Same promise of redemption. Same grace finished through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only one. The only one who ever really listened. Whoever really paid attention to God's commands. The only one who was not stubborn, stiff-necked, and hard-headed. The only one who was holy. And all of us, every single person in this room, you can experience peace. You can be righteous. You can flourish in security by faith in Jesus Christ. That comes by grace, through faith. That's what our sermon text is about. Man, that's good. So my prayer is that you're going to see the grace of God that's already accomplished everything necessary and that every one of us will turn away from, turn away from human self-sufficiency and man-made religion and turn to God to actually really trust him. Because remember, that's the whole book of Isaiah in a nutshell, in my opinion. God's saying, trust me, I am the Lord, your God. Chapter 48, uh, pardon me, chapter 47, here we go. Chapter 47, you got your Bibles out? Follow along. Basically, I'm just going to read and comment. Let me flip that. I'm going to to tell you what you're going to see, then I'm going to read it, make one or two comments, and just keep trucking. Chapter 47 is an example of of there is no peace for the wicked. Let me prove this to you because I'm going to give you Babylon as an example and I'm going to show you the natural end of human self-sufficiency and man-made religion. So for everyone in the room, 
who thinks, yeah, I think I got my life. I think I can do this on my own. I really don't need God. Or maybe I'll just, you know, pick up God before I die and turn to him then. For every one of us who wake up in the morning with our to-do list and we jump into the day and never really come before the Lord and say, God, I need you. This is for us. Verse 1 through 4, God says to Babylon, you had every opportunity. You had every opportunity, Babylon. Remember, Babylon is a superpower. And at this point in the uh, in the message of Isaiah, they are holding God's people captive. They went in, they ransacked Jerusalem, they took God's people to a foreign country. Now they're operating as slaves in captivity. They don't have any freedom. And here's big, glorious Babylon. And God says to this country, you had every opportunity. Verse 1 through 4. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil. Strip off your robe. Uncover your legs. Pass through the rivers Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. And then Isaiah seems to exclaim, Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. So in verse 1 through 4, God compares Babylon to a uh, a beautiful virgin who is sitting on the throne, the princess of the world. And he says to this beautiful virgin princess, you had every opportunity. But look what's going to happen. You're going to come down off of the throne. You're going to sit in the dust. You are going to be grinding flour at the millstone. That's the labor of slaves. Your veil is going to be taken off. Your your robe is going to be stripped from you. Your legs are going to be uncovered, which is nakedness. In other words, Babylon, in all of your glory, you're going to be dethroned and brought to shame. Verse 5 through 7. You thought you would be this beautiful mistress forever. And don't we all? Verse 5 through 7. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them, Israel, into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your your yoke exceedingly heavy. 
Verse 7, you said, I shall be mistress forever. So that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. God says you operated in such a self-exalted way that you took advantage of the opportunities that I gave you. You abused my people. You thought you're going to be on the throne and in control forever. And now I'm telling you, you will not be the mistress of the kingdoms forever because of what you've done. Verse 8 through 9. You thought, Babylon, you thought that you could pursue your own pleasure and control your own destiny. Was there ever a time in your life when you thought that you could just pursue your own pleasure and control your own destiny? Destiny. In fact, are you there right now where this is my life? Nobody's telling me what to do. I'm just going to live today and enjoy life. Babylon is an example of the natural end of this. Verse 8 through 9, you thought you could pursue your own pleasure and control your own destiny. Here's what God says to them. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasure, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am. There is no one beside me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come upon you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. Babylon felt secure. They said to themselves, oh, my word. Did you see that phrase? Have you heard that before? That's God talk. 47 chapters now, we have heard the Lord God of Israel say, I am and there is no other. He says, Babylon, that's your biggest problem. You say in your heart, look at verse 8, I am and there's no one besides me. You live as if you're God. This virgin, beautiful Princess says to herself, because everything is so good in my world, I will never know the terror of widowhood or losing children. And for those of you who have lost a spouse or children, I can only imagine that that's one of the worst things in life. God says your security is not going to keep you from that. In fact, it's going to come in a day. You're going to be a widow and childless in a moment, suddenly. Verse 10 through 11. You felt secure in your wickedness. Look at verse 10. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, man, this is like a mirror on my soul. 
You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, God talk, I am, and there is no one besides me. Verse 11, but evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall on you, for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin will come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Do you feel secure in your wickedness, doing whatever you want to do, not obeying God's law, living according to your own self-sufficiency and self-indulgence? You think nobody sees you in your sin. But evil, disaster, ruin will come on you suddenly and you're not going to be able to charm them away. Friends, this is the natural end of human self-sufficiency and man-made religion. Verse 12 and 13. God says to Babylon, with a note of sarcasm, maybe? Go ahead. Stick to your guns. Stand fast in your man-made religion. See what happens. Go go ahead. Live your life. You got this. Read 12 and 13 and just listen to what God says to this glorious nation. Who, by the way, uh, Babylon was always known for their their magic. You you even remember this in, in Daniel, right? When Daniel was there, he went up against the sorcerers and the magicians. Babylon's been always about... Uh, looking in for the stars, astrology, horoscopes, you know, things like that. Even our constellations, many of them are rooted in the names that they were given in Babylon. So Babylon is all about their magic. But God says, go ahead. Verse 12, stand fast in your enchantments and in your many, many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you might inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divine the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Ask them what's going to happen to you in the future. See if they can predict the future. See if they can keep you from the calamity that's coming upon you. And then God ends this in verse 14. By saying, look, just look around. Sort of like showing them a vision of the future. Just look around. Everything, everything that you've ever trusted in is now stubble. Friends, this is a really important thing for us because it's going to be too late in the end when we look around and see that everything that we've ever trusted in, all of our human self-sufficiency and man-made religion is stubble. We ought to just believe God now. But look how he finishes this in 14 and 15. Behold, that's Bible word for look. Behold, they are like stubble. What is? The enchanters and the uh, uh, magicians. They are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. Remember last week he was talking about Bel and Nebo, the, the false gods? being carried out 
on ox carts. They can't deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about, each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. Babylon, your enchanters, your magicians, your gods can't deliver themselves. They certainly can't deliver you. And after you spend your life trusting in them, here's going to be the epitaph. There's no one to save you. Friends, this is the natural end of human self-sufficiency and man-made religion. If you want to make a go of it apart from God... Isaiah 47 should scare your socks off. Because just let that roll out and you're going to see that in the end, human self-sufficiency and man-made religion is going to be reduced to ashes. In other words, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. I'm so glad that we're not going to stop there. So glad that along with Isaiah 47, there's an Isaiah 48. Because God has a way to rescue us from our natural proclivity to self-sufficiency and self-indulgence. God has a way to rescue us from our foolishness and rebellion and stubbornness, and stiff-necked hard-headedness. And it's by His grace. So chapter 48 is the contrast where God says to His covenant people, look, I have promised to free you from Babylon and to forgive your sin. I have prophesied all of my plans ahead of time so that you'll know I'm God. You're going to chuckle when we read this. Like, I've told you this ahead of time so that you will know I'm God. I'm going to fulfill all of my promises through my strange providence, which includes some pagan emperor named Cyrus, who isn't even on the scene yet for about a 100 years. And I'm doing all of this for one overarching purpose. And what is that purpose? We've heard over and over again from chapter 40 through 48, and this is going to be the end of this section, the God's overarching purpose for promising, prophesying, and His providence is to demonstrate His glory so that everyone, you, Cyrus, Cyrus's gods, all the nations of the world, so that everyone will know one thing. God says, I am the Lord. There is no other. That's what God wants us to know. Do you really know that? Are you living that way? Well, hold up chapter 48, not just as an example that becomes an oppressive list of rules, but hold up chapter 48 as fuel. Because here's what chapter 48 says in a nutshell. You can't 
but God has already done everything necessary to free you so that you can. That's the gospel of Jesus. All right, look at chapter 48 now. I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to tell you what we're going to read, and then I'm just going to read through chapter 48, and then I'm going to press it on our hearts and we'll be done. In verse 1 and 2, God says, I'm going to do all of this despite your hypocrisy. So God called Israel to himself, and he's making them this promises. Here's the key word, if you're taking notes, despite their hypocrisy. Verse 1 and 2. Hear this, O house of Jacob, you who are called by the name of Israel, who came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord, and confess the God of Israel, but not in truth or in right. He said, you confess that you're my people, but you're a bunch of hypocrites because you don't do it in truth or in righteousness by the way you live. Verse 2, he, he speaks of them, Israel, for they, Israel, call themselves after the holy city and stay themselves on the God of Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. These are the people who confess that God is their God. They call themselves by the holy city of Jerusalem and they trust, they stay, they lean in to God. But they only do it when it's convenient. They're hypocrites. God said, I knew that ahead of time. I called you despite your hypocrisy. Keep reading. If you don't believe me, and if you're seeing yourself there going, I, I, I'm a hypocrite too. Hmm, there's hope. There's grace. I'm telling you this is good. Keep reading. Verse 3 and three to 5, God announces all of these things that he's going to do ahead of time because of something. <laughs> because he knows that they're stubborn, stiff-necked, and hard-headed people. And he doesn't want them, when they experience really good things in life, to say, my gods did this for me. My idols did this for me. Or I achieved this through my own self-sufficiency. God says, that's why I told you all of this ahead of time, so that when it happens, you would know. Look at verse 3 through 5. The former things, the all the times in the past that I have rescued my people, and I told them I was going to do it ahead of time, like, for example, Israel and Egypt, all that stuff. The former things in the past. I declared of old. They went out from my mouth. I announced them. Then suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. Because I know that you're obstinate. Your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from of old before they came to pass. I announced them to you lest you should say my idol did them. My carved image and my metal image commanded them. (laughs) That's just, I know you people. You're always wanting to, to give credit for your success to your hard work ethic. Or to your lucky stars. So I'm telling you, I'm doing these things, and I tell you way in advance so that you'll know. 
I did them for you. You don't give credit to anyone else. Why? Because God wants us to trust him, not ourselves or our lucky stars. Verse 6 through 8. God announces not former things, but God announces new things. Huh, what are they? The new things that God's talking about is the hundred years from now deliverance. Well, even the captivity. I'm telling you what I'm going to do in advance. And we'll find out why. God announces new things knowing. Before he does them, they're a bunch of rebels to the core. And yet he still does them. Doesn't that give you hope, rebel? Yes, it does. Free verse 6 through 8. You have heard those former things. Now see all this. And will you not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you've never heard of them, lest you should say, behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known from old your ear has not been opened, for I knew that you would surely deal treacherously and that from before birth you were called a rebel. God loves to save rebels. How many qualify? Verse 9 through 11. To his people Israel, Judah, in captivity, God says, I'm restraining from cutting you off and I'm refining you. Why? For three things. For his namesake, for his praise, and for his glory. God says, I'm holding back my righteous judgment toward you to show the glory of my grace. Verse 9 through 11. For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you so that I may not cut you off. If God did not give us grace, he must give us justice, which means we would be cut off. We would have no peace because we're we're the wicked. But God has already dealt with his justice so that he can restrain his anger and give us nothing but grace. And he says, why did I do that? First of all, for my name's sake, I want a name. And God says, I want everybody to be my, to know that my name is this, God of grace. All right, keep reading, verse 10. Behold, I have refined you, not as silver, but I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. Why did God squeeze his people? To be mean to them? To punish them? No. To purify. Why does God refine? Verse 11. For my own sake. For my own sake. Didn't hear it first time. Listen to it. I'm going to say it twice to emphasize it. 
For my own sake I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I won't give to another. In other words, God says, if I don't make you righteous and then keep you righteous, you're not going to be righteous. And my name is going to be put on a people that I'm going to have to cut off. I'm not going to do that. So God does from beginning to end everything necessary to save you and keep you and to make you like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, back to his image. Verse 12 through 16. There's only two more. Verse 12 through 16. God accomplishes his purposes. All of this stuff. How's he going to do it? According to his sovereign power. He doesn't need us. He doesn't use us. We're part of the process. But from beginning to end, this is all God, friends. That's why you can pick your feet up and relax into the hammock of God's sovereign grace. He's got you. He said, I gave birth to you. I called you to myself. I made you righteous. I'm keeping you righteous. And I'm going to refine all of the impurities out of you so that you shine with my image. Beginning to end, all from his power. Look at verse 12 through 16. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called. I am he. I'm the first and I'm the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Kind of a little jab at the magicians and sorcerers there, the astrologers, don't you think? I was like, you guys are trying to figure out which stars would do what. I'm the one who flung them out there, placed them, and if I call them together, they all stand in attention and listen to me. Verse 14, assemble all of you and listen. Who among them has declared these things? The Lord loves him. I think that him is Cyrus. Because we're going to see that he accomplishes his purpose through the one that he loves. Look, the Lord loves him. He shall perform his purpose on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. And it's Cyrus who accomplishes God's purpose on Babylon and Cyrus's arm against the Chaldeans. Verse 15, I, even I, have spoken and called him. I have brought him and he will prosper in his way. Draw near to me and hear this. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it came to be, I have been there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. God says, I'm going to accomplish all of this according to my sovereign power. And then, what I believe is the most important text, what we started with. Verse 17 through 22. God says, based on all of that, everything that I'm going to do for you, he does because of his love for his people. Because of his love for his people. What have we seen? Despite their hypocrisy, because they're stubborn, stiff-necked, hard-headed, knowing that they're rebels, for 
His name's sake, His praise, His glory, according to His sovereign power, and now because of His love. God says, I'm doing all of this. Look at verse 19 through 22. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river, your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand and your descendants like the sand's grains. Their name would have never been cut off or destroyed from before me. But now look at what God says. Verse 20, to his people, go out from Babylon. Flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it out to the end of the earth and say, The Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They, speaking of Israel from the past, they did not thirst when he led them through the deserts, when he made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and the water gushed out. Verse 22, read it with me. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. God teaches and leads and frees his people because of his love for them. And God says, now that I have freed you, again, future, what does God tell them to do? Flee from Babylon and flourish. What's the conclusion of all of this? The way for us to flourish, and according to verse 18 and 19, that means to experience peace like a river that just doesn't stop. I don't usually experience that, do you? My peace is more like a trickle that gets squeezed off by circumstances a lot. God says, I've done all of this so that you can experience peace like a river. According to verse 18 and 19, so that your righteousness just keeps coming as consistently and faithfully as the waves lap up onto the shore. That's not my righteousness either. Like I might have a momentary righteousness, then the tide goes out for a long time. God says, oh, listen, my desire for you is that you experience peace like a river and that you experience righteousness like the waves that just keep coming and that you are secure forever so that you will never be cut off from my name. How do we do that? Work backwards in this text. Three ways to do that. How do we flourish? Number one. Verse 20b, start by declaring this with a shout of joy. The Lord has redeemed his people. You start there. 
you don't work up to that by saying, I got to go out and be righteous. I got to experience peace and then I'll flourish. No, 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 no. You start by seeing that God has already accomplished everything to free you from captivity and forgive your sin. And you declare it. You confess it by faith and say, I believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm free. I'm forgiven. Number two, after you declare that, keep working back up. Now 20A, flee. Flee from the enemies of your soul. Flee from Babylon and Chaldea and run away from those things that bind you up. See, knowing that God has already freed us fuels us to run away. The gospel fuels repentance. Repentance doesn't come first. The gospel fuels our desire to flee. Fill in the blank of your besetting sin. Flee pride, immorality, greed, discontent, fear, whatever. It comes because you know God's already done everything. And now he says to you, run! Turn your back on it and escape. You're free. Number three. Now go live. Number three. And what does it look like here in this text to live? Oh, that you would have paid attention to my commandments. My sweet child. You think, you think that freedom is living according to what comes natural. Reject what comes naturally. Live according to my word. Because in God's word is freedom. Oh, that you would pay attention to God's commandments. The gospel that frees and forgives fuels us to flee sin, and pay attention, fuels faith to obey God. We don't obey so that we can be free. We obey because we've already been freed. Man, I really like Isaiah 47 and 48. That's hope for stiff-necked, hard-headed, Stubborn rebels like me. And you too. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you poured out all of the wrath that we deserve on your son Jesus so that you had nothing left but covenant, abundant grace for sinners like us. We, we acknowledge to you that we are exactly what you say we are. We live according to human self-sufficiently. We run to man-made religion. We're, we're stubborn and stiff-necked. And yet, by your grace, you have, you have called us to yourself. And by your gospel, you have done everything necessary to free us. Now, I pray, I pray that you would cause us to see that so that we would live like free people, 
so that everyone, including ourselves, would know that you are the Lord and there is no God beside you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.